Hello and welcome to Plotress. This is Meg. This is Lane. And today we're reviewing Just Like Heaven by Julia Quinn. This was published in 2011 and is the first book in the Smythe Smith Quartet. Yes, that's right. So you may remember the Smythe Smiths from the Bridgerton series, which we just finished and completed. Uh, they are the family that infamously has these horrible musicians and uh, put on a musicale every year. Yes, and it's been going on for like 35 years and there's always four musicians, but it's not always the same instrument. And basically, as one cousin marries off, another just takes their place. It's an endless rotation of young, marriageable debutantes. Unfortunately, given that they have picked music to showcase these young ladies, all of them pretty much are tone deaf. Yes. And you may remember from my favorite, favorite of all Julie Quinn books ever, Romancing Mr. Bridgerton, there's actually a, a very long... Um, scene and metaphor that takes place at the Smythe Smith musicale. And that's when Penelope and Lady Danbury go basically to cheer on the one girl in the quartet who not only knows she's bad, but is also humiliated to be a part of the quartet. Yes. Let's get to the jacket. Are you ready? Honoria Smythe Smith is A, a really bad violinist, B, still miffed at being nicknamed Bug as a child, C, not in love with her older brother's best friend, D, all of the above. Marcus Holroyd is A, the Earl of Chatteris, B, regrettably prone to sprained ankles, C, not in love with his best friend's younger sister, and D, all of the above. Together they, A, eat quite a bit of chocolate cake, B, survive a deadly fever in the world's worst musical performance. C, fall quite desperately in love. It's Julia Quinn at her best, so you know the answer is D, all of the above. I mean, I'm going to be honest. This is a little, like, super cutesy over the top, but it kind of matches the book. This book is, like, super cutesy. It kind of had me until the end. That is Julia Quinn at her best? Yeah. Yeah. You hate you. I know you. Because you hate it when they say, best-selling author, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah, well, I just. author into the jacket. Yeah. I don't know. All right. Well, as usual, we tried to one-up the jacket and write our own summaries with a randomly generated number. And this week, or this episode, that number is 29. Okay. I, I'll kick it off. Don't you hate it when you discover that your brother's BFF is a major hottie and also into you, but then it turns out that actually he's not into you? That's tragic. Mm-hmm. Something really hard to go through. <laughs> right? And mine. Marcus finally finds family in the Smythe Smiths, but Honoria suddenly seems less like a little sister. Like Harry Potter ending up with Ginny Weasley, but Honoria has character development. <laughs> So favorably compared with uh, Harry Potter here. Big time. Big time. (laughs) So this book has a ton of tropes, and they are all used, in my opinion, pretty well. We've got um, friends to lovers. Basically, they've known each other since she was six and he was... Eleven. Eleven? There you go. I was going to say, how much older is he? Yeah, five years. Which... 
Great age difference. I'm not going to complain about that. Especially because she's not even a debutante in her first season. She's like in her third. So they're supposed to be like 21 and 26, which uh-huh. is great for the time period. Cool. We like love it so much. Okay. We're like, wow, not inappropriate and squicky? Yes, please. Right. And then, as you may have gathered from uh, every single one of our summaries here, the official one and both of our unofficial ones, he is her brother's best friend. Yes. So, another trope. Marcus was the sad, tragic little rich boy who was always left to play around his estate and his only friends were the maids. And so when he finally got sent off to school, he made his first real friend. And that was Honoria's brother. And he took Marcus home and introduced him to the family. And so Marcus started doing all their Christmases together. So it's a very saccharine, like he was already their adopted child and he just makes it official by falling in love with their daughter. And in case you're wondering, guys, we both have, like, shitting grins on our faces because we loved it. Oh, it's so cute. It's really, it's really cute. It's so cute. We love it. Um, we both wrote this separately because it was such a central part of the trope, Hurt Comfort. Oh, my God. It's huge. Such a big part of this book. It happens a couple of times. Uh-huh. It sure does. So she lays a trap yes for, for yes and which suitor is it she she actually lays a trap to catch Gregory, Gregory Rinton. Uh, but unfortunately Marcus literally falls into the trap yes and attempting to assist her so he sprains his ankle so she has to run and get help for him and then she goes and checks on him the next morning but then a week later she gets summoned to his estate because he's taken a turn for the worst Yep. And she, this is like some major hurt comfort actually, because she like majorly heals him. Well, and it leans into the next trope, which is random uneducated woman knows more than the doctors. Yes. And, and also uh, to the, the mother who rises to the occasion. Yes. In both cases, it's Mrs. Mike Smith, Honoria's mother. Yes. Knows how to drain and clean a wound. Yeah. And she's basically been a shadow of herself since a scandal involving Honoria's brother sent him away to the continent in hiding. That's right. Um, the, the Bridgerton trope makes a huge um, appearance here. And the Bridgerton trope being family is the most important thing. Yes, and in this case, it's the Smite Smiths instead of the Bridgertons. But when Honoria is deciding to pursue Gregory, who she's just decided she has to get married to get out of the house because her house is too depressing. Not even kidding. Mm -hmm. So she picks Gregory very practically. And one of the things that really appeals to her is that he also understands the value of family. Mm -hmm. Yep. (laughs) And I was like, yep. Um, I I do love the next trope, which is the the, I'm just going to read this letter and then read something that was not meant for my eyes. Well, and this plays into a lot of different things. So Marcus is the guy who made a parting promise to his best friend to watch over his little sister. Mm-hmm. So Marcus's raison d'etre during his best friend's absence has been to protect Honoria from unsuitable gentlemen. But of course, all of that watching her without even realizing it, he started to fall for her. And so when she reads in the letter that he was tasked with protecting me, so he hasn't just been hanging around because he likes me, 
she's devastated, misinterpreting that that means his feelings are not real. I, again, guys, this could be like terrible if this were done the wrong way. I, I could possibly have hated this misunderstanding. I didn't love it here, but it was done well enough that I didn't hate it. It also, like, it depends on context, right? This is one of the most saccharine Julia Quinns I've ever read. Mm. And Julia Quinn is saccharine. So when I'm yeah. saying this is, like, to the nth degree, yeah. please understand that there is so little actual conflict here. Yeah. That it's kind of hard to be upset about something contrived because there's just no real conflict anyway. Exactly. But not in a bad way. In a, no. like, oh, it's adorable, and they're going to end up together. No, like I, I want you guys to know that that in no way are we are we actually upset about this. Yeah. There are so many other Julia Quinn characters that appear in this book. And so, so Meg, explain to me where this book fits in the timeline of the Bridgerton series. So this book takes place concurrently with Romancing Mr. Bridgerton. Okay. So if you remember in Romancing Mr. Bridgerton, uh, Violet Bridgerton has a birthday party that, you know, everyone attends. Penelope is there and she has this eclair and she's talking to Colin and the eclair falls like on the floor or something and she puts it in a potted plant. Um, I remember this because I have read Romancing Bridgerton, Romancing Mr. Bridgerton like 50 times probably. Yeah. Uh, anyway, in this book, what happens is Marcus goes to the party and he overhears a woman about his age. So she's 28. <laughs> say, oh, hang this. I'm getting an eclair or something like that. <laughs> and I was like, it's Penelope. <laughs> he follows her because he also has a sweet tooth. Yes. Uh, and then... The Smythe Smith musicale actually has a huge part in Romancing Mr. Bridgerton as well, because it's at the musicale that um, Lady Danbury makes the bet about who can, who who is uh, Lady Whistledown. Yes. Now, of course, that is actually completely absent from this text because Honoria has to go lie down because she has a headache. And, uh -huh. and, Anyway, and so there's a, there's a huge chunk of the party. Check on her. So. Yeah. That said, we have a, a major cameo from Colin. Yes. Uh, and Lady Danbury. So both of them we know are, are at the party because we've read Romancing Mr. Bridgerton. Uh, and then Colin is used by Lady Danbury to get Marcus and Honoria together. Yes. Also, can I just tell you, so, you know, my headcanon is that Colin is, like, the matchmaker. Well, he yes. just does it again in this book because he totally is, it, he totally is, like, making sure that Marcus is <laughs> good enough for Honoria. But though. there is a little, like, incongruity, right? Because yes, Penelope's is. sister's not married yet in Romancing Mr. Bridgerton. No, she's not. Um, well, actually, no, Penel Penelope's sister is married to... Nigel Burbrook, I think. Yes, but uh, I thought they got married. They were only engaged in Romancing Mr. Bridgerton. Um, yeah, but that doesn't... Maybe they're married, maybe they're engaged. It doesn't really matter because what happens, the incongruity comes when they're talking about inviting... 
at the very beginning of the book, um, they talk about inviting Gregory Bridgerton to a house party. And then they say, we can invite Gregory Bridgerton and Neville Burbrook. They're related. Oh, how are they related? Gregory Bridgerton's brother's wife's sister is married to Neville Burbrook's brother. And so if Colin and Penelope aren't yet married, that wouldn't be true yet. Got it. Okay. Unless Sophie's evil stepsister married a Burbrook and we don't know about it. Doesn't seem like that's what they were getting at. I don't think so. I think this was meant to be a callback to um, Romancing Mr. Bridgerton, but they, she missed the timeline a little. Yeah. Which, which is really surprising because one of the great things about the Bridgerton series is how well she weaves the books together. And so anyway, I, I, I was telling Lane before that she really needed like a Bridgerton slash Trekkie to do the, the fact checking here because you know, in the Star Trek world, uh, their Trekkies are well known for for catching every single, you know, mistaken thing. Like my sister. So I, I like Star Trek. My sister-in-law likes Star Trek. My sister-in-law and I were talking and she's like, can you believe that this happened in Deep Space Nine? Because we all know that Crusher did this in Next Generation. And I was like, oh, you're right. <laughs> the worst is Clearly I was like. Julia Quinn could use your services. That's what I'm saying is she, well, really, she could have asked me anything about Romancing Mr. Bridgerton. So yeah. She's going to set another book concurrent with Romancing Mr. Bridgerton. I will, I am there for her. Yes. You, you would provide your sources. Correct. Anyway, so minor incongruity in the book. Yeah. And the only, la- the last trope I will identify is he is one of the upstanding young gentlemen who will offer to dance with all of the wallflower young ladies. And right. so he gets kind of suckered in to talk to Honoria. He has to put his name on all of her friends' dance cards. Yes. And when he does so, of course, Honoria gets the waltz. Of course. Uh, and again, guys, like, we're just sitting here grinning because we love it. It's very cute. So as you can tell from our identification of the tropes, this book is really cute. Yes. I will say up front that it suffers in the sexiness. I mean, yes. This book is, it could just be like young adult, as in young adult before young adult started having sex in it. You know? Like prior to the final scene between the two of them, which is the very end of the book, and honestly feels a little bit shoehorned in. They were like, they were like Julia. You gotta put a sex scene in there. Yeah, the most they do is peck. There's mm-hmm. not even a real makeout. Mm-hmm. It's very like uh, young adult first kiss until yeah. this random, not that explicit sex scene. Yeah, but if you can accept that, like it's it's very very cute and it's a very fun quick read with like no angst. Like you oh, are not gonna. Adorable. There's no. Yes, there's no anxiety when you read this book. There's no. You don't get pissed off at them for doing for making stupid decisions. Like I didn't even get pissed off at her for misunderstanding. I just was like, oh, how silly of you, Anoria. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't know. Is is this like a super memorable book? No, but. Uh, like literally I finished this last night and then I went to bed and like as I was closing my eyes and like drifting off to sleep I was just like 
oh, that was just such a cute book. It's like little ooey gooey feeling. Well, and the praise I'll give this as better than most of the Bridgertons, not all, but most, I actually do feel like this couple is really well suited. They are not the same person, but you get why they like each other. You get what they have in common. You get why they're into each other. You get how they balance each other out. Like the lack of sex does mean a lot of time was spent with them like talking. <laughs> oh my God. So annoying. Right. And but and so I really was, I was really rooting for them. Like yeah. in so many different ways. You're like, just get together. It's the cutest thing. <laughs> it, it's, it's very cute. It's really best friend's brother um, or brother's best friend, I should say. Um, and friends to lovers, like done perfectly well. Just really, really done well. Yeah. I mean, Lane doesn't like this part of the book jacket, but I will give them this. This really is, in my opinion, Julia Quinn at her best. <laughs> Sorry, Lane just like made <laughs> the most disgusted face. <laughs> sure. Uh, oh, gosh. Um, but yeah, like her strengths are really on display. Well, gosh, is there a large, snarky, loving family, a supportive mother, funny dialogue? Is Lady Danbury and Colin Bridgerton in this book? Yes, yes. Meg might yes. have mentioned it last, but that last bit's her most important. Uh, not the most important, but um, it will never <laughs> bring down a book if Colin is there. Just throwing it out there. Just throwing it out there. But but no, but truly. Uh, and we've talked about this. Like, Julia Quinn is not, her dialogue is not historically accurate. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, but it's very fun. It's really enjoyable to read. It sounds like a conversation people would actually have. And one thing that I will also give her is that her her dialogue between women feels real. Yes. And in this Look, there are some, I wouldn't say subversive or overly insightful conversations about the role of matchmaking in this era, mm -hmm. but you do see a different side of it in how daughters and mothers interacted in that. Yeah, yeah, I, I actually, li I liked it quite a bit, and I think that one of Quinn's strengths is how sympathetic she is to the matchmaking mama. Yes. And you, but Mrs. Smythe Smith is not Mrs. Bridgerton. No. She's and I like that you got a sympathetic view of the matchmaking mama, but it was a very different character for all that. It's the same stereotype. Yeah. She, and you know, Quinn does a really good job with characters in general. Like you don't feel like all of her characters are the same people. Yeah. You know, Honoria really is her own person. Uh, she's not another Penelope. She's not another um, Francesca. Like, there, I can't think of two of her characters who are exactly the same. Yeah, and I think, honestly, what makes Honoria stand out is her appreciation for the big family she has mm -hmm. and her willingness to be the glue that keeps it all together. I think a lot of the Bridgertons, while they love the big family, it makes them want to have kids. Yes. Like the Bridgertons respond to having this really loving 
couple in the form of their parents as a representative of a good marriage to them and having all these brothers and sisters to be their friends as a like, oh, I want to keep the line going. Whereas what's unique about Honoria is she really looks back on the traditions and is one of the factors kind of keeping the peace within her wider extended family. And she really does appreciate what they provide to her. Yeah. And that's actually why I think the musical was more palatable because in all of the other books and not just the Bridgerton books, but in several other books, the Smythe Smiths are really the butt of the joke. Yes. You know? And you find when you read this one that Honoria is a part she understands what her role is she understands that she's not a good musician right like and actually I thought that was really cute too because they talked um she talked a different time about how she wasn't a good dancer either she couldn't tell the difference between waltz time and common time And I was like, well, that fits in with her her musicianship. (laughs) I thought it was really, like, a little, it was subtle enough that I was like, oh, that was really cute. Like, oh, that was really good. Well done. You kind of get explained that there are a very, very small minority of Smythe Smiths who are either talented or mortified to be up there knowing they're not talented. Right. Then there's a pretty large percentage that actually somehow think they're good. Right. And then there's sort of a middle group that knows they're not good, but really likes the tradition of it. Yeah. And that's where Honoria falls. Yeah. And it does remind me of those like stupid family things that you do sometimes, you know, like, Oh, Lane and I are both like, yep. You know, like when I was, and I catch myself doing it with my daughter too. Like we would, um, my family would drive home. We'd like drive out during Christmas and we'd drive home and then we would say, oh, whose house is that? It's so beautiful. It's so well decorated. Like it would be our house, obviously, right? (laughs) And I remember I would do it every time my mom and I would do it and my brothers would be like, oh my God, shut up, you guys. (laughs) And now I do the same thing. I'm like, oh, Caroline, look, (laughs) whose Christmas tree is that? It just looks so beautiful. (laughs) So... You know, all these, it's, I'm not humiliating myself in front of, you know, all of my peers and people I want to marry, but I identify with this idea of like the stupid family tradition that you just keep going because it's kind of fun. Well, and like my cousins and I all in some way performed or did sports in school. And my dad has this really piercing whistle. Mm Mm-hmm. And so my cousins and I growing up all joked that like we knew where our family was because the whole crowd would kind of silence and shock at the (laughs) level of cheering that would come from my family section. And yes, it was mortifying, but it was also like obviously so prompted by love that you can't be upset about it. Exactly. And so I I think we both understood this is it's not a universal feeling, but it's a feeling that's universal enough that I think you can identify with Anaria. Yes. And the, like, the equal parts mortification and joy. Yeah. You know you're being dumb, but it's your family. Exactly. But I will say, I loved Anoria's self-awareness, and I love how it's sort of through Lady Danbury's only sympathizing with the ones who look like they're in pain on its head. Yes. 
I didn't love how in the epilogue, Honoria looks very seriously at Marcus and is like, oh my God, they got better. They're so good now. Because it's like, no, 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 no. Your, your hearing wouldn't have changed. You know they're still bad. You just love them. Yeah, well, he did say, well, maybe they did improve and they were just like really bad before. <laughs> I will say also, though, I gave her the benefit of the doubt on this one because she was pregnant. When you're pregnant, like, you do really weird things. Like, I would watch Call the Midwives. And in that show, I don't, have you seen that show? I think I've seen one episode. So, I mean, it's very good. The acting is really good. It's very interesting. You know, it's a period drama that happens just after World War II. And these, it these stars young... the woman from the spy movies. Yes. And so, so this yeah. young, these young women act as midwives. And so it's about their dramas, but also every single episode was like some kind of pregnancy scare. Right? Well, I can see why that rationally would make you emotional when you're pregnant. I don't know why suddenly you'd think your cousins who are tone deaf are talented. Well, what's irrational is that I just kept watching it over and over and crying every single episode. And my husband was like, just stop watching it. I'm like, but it's such a good show. So you just, what okay. I'm saying is you just do weird things when you're pregnant. So I am giving her the benefit of the doubt. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, was, did anything offend you about this book? No, this is so cute. It's so cute. Like there's this part that like should probably have offended me because there's this actually pretty major fist fight. Yeah. Um, I thought the book was so cute that I actually kind of liked it. And then, like, later, Marcus actually threatens to kill someone and seems pretty serious about it for uh, insulting Honoria. And I, I, in a different book, if this were a more serious book, I would have been like, oh, that's so gross, so misogynistic, blah, blah, so paternalistic. And very much is the, like, boys express themselves by fighting and you just need to let them slug it out and then they'll talk. Yeah. Um, Which and, isn't great. And, again, like, in a different book, I probably would have hated it. And I just liked it. What can I say? I enjoyed it. I thought it was all cute. I will say one minor trigger warning for medical gore. There's, yes, yes. There's a lot of, Marcus has a very serious infection on his leg. Yes. Uh, and it's talked about in great detail. The process of draining it and cutting away the dead flesh. And if so, if you're queasy... I'm not, but I can see how that sequence would have been too much. Yeah. Uh, sexiness, we already talked about this. This is um, Quinn sexy, as in there's one cute sex scene. And it's more cute than sexy, though. I would say there's very little in this book that's sexy. Yeah. I mean, if anything, I, I don't think, let's be honest, I don't think I would use the word sexy. I don't think I would either. Yeah. Um, there is a sex scene. Mm-hmm. But, you know. It's just, it's very short and much more adorable than explicit. Yeah. That said, uh, this book was cute enough, non-angsty enough, and, like, kind of perfect for what we needed right now in our minds, in our lives, that yes. we are kind of forgiving it for not being super sexy. Because the yeah, point of this book, mood you're in. I would say I unequivocally yeah. recommend this book. I thought it was very, very good. Mm -hmm. 
if I was in the headspace where I was when we read the one that you recommended when I said I just need something really explicit. His Mistress this, by Morning. Thank you. If I was in the headspace I was in when you recommended Mistress by Morning, this would not have cut it. Well, don't worry. I never would recommend this book. <laughs> when you were like, I just need some hot sex. <laughs> I wouldn't be like, well, there are these like friends to lovers. Like really cute story. <laughs> But anyway, this this book is really fun. I th think it's a good series starter too because you you meet the characters. They actually start getting some character development in this book. They're not just spin-off characters. Yes. Um so uh, I think it's a good series starter. I think it's a super cute book. If you want a book that's going to make you smile and like like seriously when you finish it be like, "Oh, that was cute." Like this is the book for you. Uh, that was the exact reaction I had. Seriously, right? Right. <laughs> As always, thank you guys so much for listening. We'd love it if you could rate, review, and subscribe.